This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... The situation in Cabo Delgado can be described as moving into a forgotten conflict. That's Professor Adriano Muvunga, Director of Mozambique for Democracy and Development, about the dire situation in the country's Cabo Delgado region. Details coming up. Also, at least 73 migrants are presumed dead in a shipwreck off the coast of Libya. And Cameroon's health ministry has dismissed a report of two suspected cases of Marburg virus in the country. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. A group of Ukrainian protesters have sailed a yacht close to a Russian warship docked in Cape Town ahead of South Africa-hosted war games with the Russian and Chinese navies. Critics say South Africa's hosting of Russian warships for drills at the one-year anniversary of its ongoing invasion of Ukraine pokes holes in its claim to neutrality. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. Military men in uniform stood on the deck of Russia's Admiral Gorshkov frigate Tuesday and watched protesters aboard a yacht which bore the Ukrainian flag. Fearless, the group of eight, mostly women, shouted and held signs reading, Stop the war. The Russian news agency TASS quoted an unnamed official saying the hypersonic Zircon missiles carried by the Admiral Gorshkov will be test-fired during the drills. Because of their speed, the missiles cannot be detected by existing missile defense systems. The South African National Defense Force did not reply to requests to confirm the test firing. Protester Zvinka Kochur of the Ukrainian Association of South Africa says human rights activists and environmentalists are begging the South African government to stop the war games. Uh, Russian state media, which is fully controlled by Russian government, has already said that they are planning to fire Circon missile during those uh, trainings. We understand that this is pure propaganda to take uh, attention away from uh, what Russia is doing in Ukraine and what Russia is doing. They are killing civilians, they are destroying hospitals, they are destroying life of millions of people. Kuchar says South Africa, which has chosen to take a neutral stance in Russia's war on Ukraine and abstained on several United Nations resolutions condemning the onslaught, is simply being used by Vladimir Putin. Uh, I know uh, South Africa says we are a sovereign country and we can be friends with uh, any country that we want, and this is true. But if you choose uh, to be friends with the country that is running a war, it's also sent a message about yourself. You can be friends, but at least say to a friend that is causing gender-based violence, stop beating your wife. The mayor of Cape Town, Jordan Hill Lewis, who belongs to the main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, replied to a tweet by the Russian consulate in Cape Town and told the ship to Futsak. This is an impolite Afrikaans word that means go away. He said the ship is not welcome and that the city would not be complicit in Russia's evil war. Political analyst Daniel Silk, director of the Political Futures Consultancy, says if South Africa keeps making decisions to side with Russia, there could be consequences in terms of its global standing. I think South Africa is 
entering a minefield of uh, attempting to uh, find a balancing act here. Uh, but I do think that when it comes to assistance and aid from the United States, perhaps from even some Western countries, um, there may well be a reluctance. There may well be a, a frowning upon South Africa's stance on this particular issue. The Admiral Gorshkov left Cape Town Harbour Wednesday and is making its way to the site of the military drills off the coast of South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province. The exercise is scheduled to take place from February 17 to 27. This is the second naval exercise South Africa is carrying out with Russia and China, which are two of its four partners in the BRICS alliance. The first took place in 2019. Several anti-war protests against the drills are planned. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. The United Nations says at least 73 migrants are presumed dead in a shipwreck off the coast of Libya. The International Center for Migration says so far seven survivors have been found and 11 bodies retrieved after a boat carrying 80 people left for Europe from Qasr al-Qair, about 75 kilometers east of the capital Tripoli. According to the French news agency AFP, more than 17,000 deaths and disappearances have been recorded in attempted crossings off the central Mediterranean since 2014. Cameroon's health ministry has dismissed a report of two suspected cases of Marburg virus in the country after a first deadly outbreak in neighboring Equatorial Guinea. Health officials along the border said Tuesday there were two suspected cases of the severe hemorrhagic fever in Cameroon after Malabo confirmed nine deaths and 16 possible infections. Despite dismissing the reported cases, Cameroon's health ministry says it is increasing surveillance and travel restrictions along the border. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Health Minister Manauda Malashi says Cameroon does not yet have any suspected cases of the Marburg virus, despite reports of two possible infections. Health officials in Cameroon's south region on Tuesday said a teenage boy and girl suffering from high fever were rushed to a hospital Monday in Olamze on the border with Equatorial Guinea. The health officials said the children were suspected of being infected with the Marburg virus, are in isolation and are responding to treatment. But Malashi seemed to contradict those reports when he spoke Wednesday to state broadcaster Cameroon Radio Television. Malashi says the decision by Cameroon to stop Marburg virus and illness like Ebola by restricting movement along the border with Equatorial Guinea is so far yielding fruit. He says as of Wednesday at midday, Central African time, Cameroon had not yet reported any deaths or suspected cases of Marburg virus. Malashi says civilians should avoid contact with animals and people who have traveled to Equatorial Guinea and make sure people with fever, fatigue, and blood-stained vomit and diarrhea are isolated. But Malashi warned its porous border with Equatorial Guinea, which confirmed Monday its first outbreak of the deadly virus, puts it at risk. Cameroon last week said 
it restricted movement along the border after Equatorial Guinea quarantined hundreds of people in Kentem province where the hemorrhagic fever was first reported. The World Health Organization says Equatorial Guinea sent samples to the Pasteur Institute in Senegal after an alert by a health official on February 7 and one of them tested positive. The WHO says Marburg was transmitted to people from fruit bats spread between people via bloody fluids and has a fatality rate of up to 88%. Marburg is in the same family as the Ebola virus, but unlike Ebola, there are no vaccines for Marburg, just treatments from the symptoms such as dehydration and fever. Health officials from Cameroon and Gabon, which also shares borders with Equatorial Guinea, met Tuesday in Yaoundé and agreed to work together to prevent the virus from spreading. University of Yaoundé sociology lecturer Francois Bingono Bingono was in the meeting. He says the frequent movement of people across the borders will make stopping the virus a challenge. Bingono says in 2020, Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea restricted movement along their border to protect their populations from COVID-19, but civilians on both sides did not respect the order. He says people living on both sides of the Cameroon-Equatorial Guinea border belong to the same ethnic groups, speak the same language, and celebrate happy events or mourn such events together. Bingono says health workers not known in border communities are struggling to educate locals that a deadly virus threatens their lives. He says they will need traditional rulers to help convince their people. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says the virus was first identified in 1967 in simultaneous outbreaks in laboratories in Marburg and Frankfurt, Germany, and in Belgrade. Marburg is not new to Africa, but is relatively new to West Africa. An outbreak in Ghana in September last year killed two people, while Guinea recorded one death from the virus in 2021, the first known case in West Africa. The WHO reported previous outbreaks in Angola, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, South Africa, and Uganda. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. Human rights groups and subsecurity analysts say the government of Mozambique is neglecting the ongoing insurgency in the country in favor of resurrecting energy projects. Some of the world's biggest oil and gas companies suspended operations off the coast of northern Cabo Delgado province in early 2021 because of attacks by militants allied to the Islamic State Global Terror Network. Darren Taylor reports. Some political analysts say successive governments in Mozambique have done little to develop the northern region and its people are some of the poorest in the world. The neglect, they say, has historical origins. The people of northern Mozambique, many who follow Islam, largely have opposed the ruling Frelimo party since the country won independence from Portugal in 1975. Local discontent began rising in 2010 
when large oil and gas fields were found off the coast of Cabo Delgado. The government signed contracts to share profits with international extractive giants such as Total, angering area inhabitants. This opened the door for extremists to recruit dissatisfied residents to launch attacks across the region, killing, torturing and raping villagers. Conflict monitors say the insurgency has claimed about 4,500 lives and displaced about a million people. The situation in Cabo Delgado can be described as moving into a forgotten conflict. Professor Adriano Nuvunga is director of Mozambique's Center for Democracy and Development. He says Southern African and Rwandan troops have killed many extremists since they entered Cabo Delgado in July 2021. Nuvunga says the militants still launch attacks but are no longer able to attack and occupy significant territory. But, he adds, the government isn't stepping in to help people. He says it seems as if the state expects conflict victims to return to ruined homes and devastated crops and to resume their lives as if everything's fine. Government has not officially acknowledged the governance failure in Cabo Delgado and in northern Mozambique as one of the key drivers of the conflict. Maputo responds that it's established the Northern Mozambique Development Agency, but it will take time for its plans to bear fruit. Agency chief Armando Ngunga says it has a $300 million fund to develop the region. But human rights groups note the national plan to develop northern Mozambique focuses only on reconstructing government buildings, roads and communications. Nuvunga says the state seems to be focused on convincing oil and gas companies to return. Nuvunga says vague promises again have been made that area residents would benefit from the energy projects, but nothing was put on paper. The leaders of these countries... They have access to information, they have access to influence, they have access to power. They use that to take land, they use that to control minerals, including illegal logging, etc. And in so doing, all this wealth is not contributing into the development of the state capacity, which would result in existing resources to be widely distributed among the ordinary citizens, but there is also another aspect. The government denies such allegations, but Nuvunga warns if nothing significant is done soon to address local grievances, Islamic State loyalists will return and another cycle of violence will begin. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. February in the U.S. is Black History Month, and one of America's heroes of the 19th century is Harriet Tubman. Born in 1822, Tubman helped scores of enslaved black Americans resist bondage and gain their freedom. Today, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center is open to the public just a mile or so from where Tubman grew up in the state of Maryland's eastern shore. Dana Pater 
back park manager of the visitor center talks with VOA's Carol Van Dam about Tubman's humble beginnings. She worked in the timber industry with her father. She trapped muskrats in the marshes. She was illiterate in the traditional sense, although the time that she spent in nature allowed her to hone skills that made her successful in her rescue mission. She was able to navigate the landscape by reading the stars and reading the signs of nature. And that helped her uh, to guide her rescue missions successfully up and down the Eastern shore 13 times. She was a very courageous person, man or woman, just hands down. Um, she's also, she's known as the Moses of her people. Can you explain that? She was given that name by abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison uh, because of her ability to successfully lead her people to freedom, just as Moses was able to lead the Israelites to the promised land. Tell us a little more about what the what visitors will find when they enter the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center. Well, our focus here at the park is on Tubman's early years in the Choptank River region of Maryland. She was born Araminta Ross in 1822, and she spent her formative years in Madison, Church Creek area, Wolford, and Bucktown. And it was here that she learned outdoor survival, checking muskrats on the Little Blackwater River, and there were communities of both free and enslaved African Americans living in the shipbuilding towns of Madison, Wolford, and Church Creek, where the timber was being taken to be processed and shipped out. And it was here in these towns that Tubman interacted with blackjacks or free African-American sailors who taught her how to navigate by the stars. People may not know that she escaped pretty much on her own, and then she went back several times, which was very dangerous, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. On September 17th of 1849, she made the decision to self-liberate. And once she reached Philadelphia and William Still's office, she realized that even though she was free, her friends, her family, her community were still enslaved. And so she made the gut-wrenching decision to risk her life to come back to Maryland's Eastern Shore not once or twice, but at least 13 times to rescue at least 70 uh, friends and family members. And sometimes when people hear the term Underground Railroad, they think it's a real thing, but it's not a real thing. Yes, and unfortunately, we still run into that. Um, the Underground Railroad is a resistance movement. It's made up of whites, African-Americans, men, women, basically abolitionists that do not believe slavery should be allowed. And during that time, of course, it was the Civil War in this country, and Tubman served as a scout, a spy, and even a soldier for the Union Army. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. On June 1st, 1863, she became the first woman to plan and execute an armed expedition during the Civil War. And along with Colonel James Montgomery, they struck a devastating blow to plantations along South Carolina's Cumbee River. And over 700 recently freed enslaved people stormed the boats, carrying everything they possibly could, pigs, chickens, children, food, and there was chaos and confusion. And it quickly turned into an alarming situation. And Colonel Montgomery turned to Moses and told her to calm her people. 
And Tubman took a deep breath, looked out at the crowds for about two minutes, and then began singing glory until everyone joined in and the situation was under control enough to organize the safe evacuation of the 700 recently liberated. That's Dana Patera, park manager at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Center. She talked to VOA's Carol Van Dam. Nigerians will vote on February 25th to choose their next president along with lawmakers in the House and Senate chambers. Experts weigh in on the electoral dynamics and their implications for security, the economy, and Nigeria's foreign policy. VOA's Maria Madialo reports. There are 18 candidates vying for the presidency in Nigeria. Among the main contenders are Bola Tinubu from the ruling All Progressives Congress, APC, and Atiku Abubakar of the main opposition People's Democratic Party, PDP. But something is different this time, says Vanda Felbab Brown, co-director of the Brookings Institution's Africa Security Initiative, who convened a panel discussion on Tuesday. In addition to the representatives of APC and PDP, uh, there are others running. Among them is Peter Obi, the former governor of Anambra State, representing the Labour Party, and Rabbi Musan Juanquaso, former governor of Kano and former federal minister of defense of the New Nigeria's People's Party. So this election is uh, more competitive than has been uh, the case and certainly generating a lot of excitement just in terms of the electoral dynamics. Each candidate has a vision for Africa's biggest economy and most populous nation. Tinubu, 70, says he will create wealth for the country. We will turn a year ahead. It will be our Eldorado. Abubakar, 76, who lost to President Muhammadu Buhari in the 2019 elections, has a message of inclusion. Buhari is stepping down after two terms. Every part of this country will be given a sense of belonging. No part will be sidelined. No part will be marginalized. For Obi, 61, it's time to build a new Nigeria that's more attractive to its people. Those who left, even the young people who are today living, they'll come back. We want to bring them back. Nigerians are prepared to come back if they can find that they have a country to go back to. Obi has generated buzz among young Nigerians, panelists said. Matthew Page is associate fellow at Chatham House. He's also the author of the book, Nigeria, What Everyone Needs to Know. The election is a bit of a test of strength for the country's kleptocratic ruling class. I think we're all watching, especially in light of Peter Obi's candidacy, to see if the country's sort of uh, powerful ruling elites who have really, um, regardless of their party, maintained their grip on the political system in Nigeria now since 1999. Will they retrench decisively and maintain their hold on the system? Or will they face a strong challenge from candidates that enjoy the support of, of younger Nigerians? According to the Electoral Commission, 93 million people have registered to vote, and voters age 18 to 34 make up about 40% of that total, said Cynthia Mbamalu, Director of Programs for Yaga Africa. Page says on the economy, Nigeria must pursue economic and fiscal policies that unleash the country's human and economic potential. Nigeria now is very much trapped in a, in a, in a problematic cycle of high inflation, currency devaluation and manipulation, 
uh, wasteful spending and irresponsible borrowing. Now, while Nigeria's debt to GDP ratio remains relatively low, at the same time, its debt servicing costs are incredibly high. So for example, in its 2023 budget, debt servicing costs will account for 30% of the government's budget. Other issues Nigeria faces, the panelists said, include crime, corruption, climate change, and the need for good governance. Mariama Jalu, VOA News, Washington. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Thank you.